Okay, um, a very warm welcome to our event today on the, the Resurrection of the European Banking Union, um, a great title which almost suggests that European Banking Union has been, has been buried already. Um, so let's see how we resurrect it. Um, and to have that conversation today, we are joined by, we are joined by uh, Luis Garricano. He's the Vice President of Renew Europe um, in the European Parliament, responsible for economic, digital, and many other affairs, um, uh, and himself also an economist, a distinguished economist, um, formerly at the London School of Economics, if I recall correctly. Luis will uh, present um, a recent uh, paper of his, and following uh, his presentation, we will um, have a conversation here among the, the four of us with um, Tom um, Dechane, uh, who is a board member of the National Bank of Belgium, um, and uh, Michaela Markusen, who's the chief economist, global head of economics um, at Societe Generale. Thank you all for coming. And uh, Luis, without much further ado, um, let me give you the floor to present your paper. All right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's very loud. Sound, please. They will, um, they will regulate it as you speak. Let's see. Yeah, I don't want to. <coughs> it's very nice to be here. Thanks very much. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. And thanks for the invitation. It's really a pleasure to to be uh, back at Bruegel, uh, always uh, a place where I've had a great, interesting uh, conversations and always learned a lot. So yes, uh, I will. Oh, now the opposite happened. I think they did tell me it's the very first time they used this mic, so I was already kind of fearing <laughs> some. Uh, so the, the the diagnosis is is the one that uh, Kunja uh, mentioned. Um, the fear is that the uh, banking union is in trouble, in real trouble. Okay, um, I don't want to fall into euro gloom, but uh, here it's, it might be uh, uh, warranted. Recall uh, contagion uh, during the crisis. Um, we, we all learned uh, a new buzzword, which was the doom loop. Um, Marcus Bremeyer and I and a few others like to call it diabolic loop, but I guess doom loop won the battle. <laughs> um, the idea was, what we observed was that in certain countries, banks would fall, banks would fail, and the taxpayers of their home countries would be the only one remaining behind them. Uh, the resolutions uh, were national, the liquidations of the banks, uh, the bank grants would be falling under the deposit insurance of those countries, and state aid would have to be used, meaning the sovereigns would be hit hard by those resolutions. I remember we saw also Ireland. I didn't see that firsthand, but I saw it firsthand in Spain when the government decided that Bankia was in trouble and suddenly it realized it didn't have the access to the market necessary to actually liquidate Bankia. And, uh, we ended up having to ask, Spain had to ask for a huge loan from Europe and the IMF, they, they, there was a troika uh, just for finance sector, but it was, a, it was a rescue. The other part of the loop happens when the sovereign is in trouble and because banks have such large concentrations of sovereign banks or sovereign debt in their balance sheets, they hold the debt of those particular sovereigns, of, 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 of the particular sovereign of, of their home country, 
uh, where the bank is in trouble, then the capital of the banks is actually lower than it seems because they hold, for example, if you remember, Greek debt, um, Irish debt, Italian debt, etc. That, that looked risky. In some cases, it was very risky. Uh, the idea is that this loom remains strong. I'm going to argue that the part that links sovereigns to banks is still a problematic. There is still high concentration of sovereign debt uh, holdings on the bank balance sheets. And the link from the banks to the sovereigns is also strong. Uh, we still see basically national liquidations and resolutions and no joint deposit insurance. And what I'm going to try is to give you a politically feasible path out of this. Basically, my aim here is not to give you some fancy economic solution. Nothing about I'm saying is going to be uh, fancy in any way. Uh, the aim is to actually put something on the table that the main actors in the north and the south of Europe, in the banks and in the regulators and the private sector, and we'll, we'll hear what, what people have to say, find reasonable. Not great. Nobody has to find it great. They have to say this is the start of something. And the paper, uh, which you can find in, in, in my website, has been prompted by uh, the Schultz 2000, November 2019 uh, paper where he says um, he actually wants to restart Banking Union. To me, you know, let me just be very frank with you here. I arrived to the banking, to the European Parliament. Uh, I had to decide what do I put my, my money, which the only money I really have, the only thing scarce that really matters in life is time, right? <laughs> what do I put my time in? And I am very aware, first thing you learn if you're an MEP, is that the stories of many friends and uh, colleagues who spent five years in a dossier that never got anywhere. So you want to try to work on something that has some possibilities of getting uh, to a safe port. And everybody said, forget about banking union. It's been dead for five years. Nothing has <laughs> happened with the post insurance. Uh, nothing's going to happen anymore. And, you know, Schultz in November um, and some other indications that we've had made me think, and I will appreciate your thoughts from a national bank, that maybe, you know, <coughs> there is some scope. And I built on a couple of words, a couple of ideas that Schultz put on the table, trying to say, okay, let's kind of at least keep the ball moving and see if we can get somewhere. So remember what we had on the table to kill the doom loop, to break the doom loop. We said we're going to have banking union, that's the nice word that we use in Europe, for a construction that <coughs> will have three pillars. Pillars are big euro word, right? A single supervisory mechanism that will make sure that all the banks are held to the same standard. We don't have, if we have a whole euro that at the end is going to, we're going to have to step in for each other. We don't want to have hidden secrets that suddenly you, you realize that some bank has some trash in the balance sheet. Second, we're going to have a resolution board. Banks are in trouble. We'll have a common process in Europe to avoid bank runs, to avoid, um, to avoid having to inject state aid, very importantly. So this system is built on a key mechanism, which is bail-in. We will put, in we, banks will have enough of what's called bail-inable capital, which means capital in which people have been won. Sorry, you're putting this money here, you might lose it, okay? We don't want to have uh, debt, which is not bail-inable, which means debt which uh, 
people think is safe, for example, deposits, you put your deposit in the bank, you don't imagine that this deposit can be bailed in. We don't want to do that. We want to have some debt that will be available, and that's going to avoid having to write a check by the member states, by the states, to rescue banks. And thirdly, a common deposit insurance. When Arkansas, in Arkansas, uh, Arkansas Bank fails, it's not Arkansas Deposit Insurance or Arkansas State which takes care of the bank, it's a Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation of the United States, which means this doesn't trigger a systemic failure of Arkansas or of another state that might have banking failure. We also have a single rule book which was debated uh, in Parliament and which was successfully passed by, by, by Council and, and by Parliament uh, over the, the, those years which I have to say has some inconsistencies, uh, some parts advance in one direction, some parts advance in another, the rapporteurs not, didn't necessarily coordinate, but okay. We have a deposit guarantee uh, directive, we have a bank resolution framework, and we have Basel, which tells you what the capital requirements are uh, for the banks. Now, what are the three things that um, are failing? Um, single resolution board, um, I would say it's in office but not in power. We have a board that is supposed to resolve the banks. The, the truth of the matter is when actually push comes to show, um, the resolution board in most times, I'll show you a list of cases, says, mm, you know, this is not really in the public interest that Europe takes care of it. It's a national problem. Uh, when it goes to the national authorities, they are not going to use the BRRD and resolve it they're going to most of the time say, oops, what a nightmare, people are going to lose money, let them not lose money, taxpayers write a check, which means doom loop back. Deposit insurance, as I told you at the very start, we are for five years discussing these rules with no uh, progress whatsoever. There is no common deposit insurance, neither here nor right now in the horizon. And the rules in the BRRD particularly have proven easy to circumvent. Uh, the ones who, I've talked to the people who wrote the BRRD, I've talked to the people in the Commission who wrote it, I've talked to the people in Parliament who wrote it, and I think the philosophy, and Guntram was there during this, 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 this part, so correct me if I'm wrong, Guntram, is that resolution will be for the many and not for the few. That most medium-sized, would you agree with that? Most medium-sized banking failures will be dealt with by the European scheme. In fact, as I'll show you later, the public interest assessment, the rules that determine when Europe, when the single, uh, the SRB, the, the authority that Europe has entrusted with doing this, steps in, uh, that public interest assessment are rules that are kind of, or have been interpreted in a very restrictive way. I don't think they're restrictive, actually. I think they could be a little bit more broad, but they've been interpreted restrictively. Maybe because the board, the SRB, doesn't think it has enough money. So what I'll do is, Ah, sorry, and I wanted to show you evidence that what I say about the single market is true. This, as a European, after eight years or more of building a banking union, I find it very depressing. This is an index of cross-border and domestic lending in the European Union. The top, uh, in the left, the top uh, line shows you domestic lending. Okay, there was a crisis. It's not great, but I mean, it's basically at the same level as it was. Cross-border lending has declined by 35%. On the right, you see the exposures by the, the cross-border bank exposures. I don't know if this coincides with your experience, uh, Michaela, in terms of what, 
what, what, what, what you see in the market. But what the data tells us is that uh, loans and deposits have gone down in trillions of euros from eight is the blue, is the blue, uh, the lowest uh, bar, set of bars, the blue ones. Loans and deposits which are cross border have gone down from eight to five and a half trillion. It's a very sharp contraction. So we don't really have a single market for banks. We have more and more, and you can see it when you walk in the streets, okay? Uh, more and more local banks. In Spain, we used to have significant branch networks of BNP, Paribas, Deutsche Bank, Barclays, um, Societe Generale, ENG, uh, all those are gone. Um, the other side of the graph I showed you, uh, the other piece of evidence I want to show you that uh, the banking union is failing, has to do with exposures. And what you he see here is that banks, remember I told you that part of the problem with the loop was that we had banks quite concentrated on uh, lending to their own sovereign, so that when the sovereign fails, the bank fails. This is how much of the exposure of banks to a sovereign is to their own sovereign. And what you see in Cyprus is almost 100%, but in every country, essentially, uh, or not in Belgium, actually, it's 60%. Uh, I guess you don't have, I was going to say, you have but no, I was going to say banks. <laughs> I was going to say banks, but okay, I don't, I, I won't say it. Um, over 60% in most places. Um, you can also see it as a percent of tier one. It's interesting the trend, right? You see, you don't see a, a lower trend. You see some countries which are going down, some countries which are going up, but in most countries, 100% of tier one capital is basically, uh, the, the equivalent, the sovereign exposure is more or less 100% tier one capital. Okay, so let's get to work. So I'm going to try to put on the table two straightforward proposals that you hopefully will be able to explain when you walk out. So my job is to make something which is simple, simple. I, nothing is complicated here. Two simple proposals to cap the loop in both directions. First from sovereigns to banks, and then from banks to sovereigns. From sovereigns to banks. What do we do? Remember, we just saw the graph. The problem is that banks invest too much in their own sovereign. Why? Think of the Treasury Office. Uh, I'll give you two reasons. And I've been on a board of a bank and I've been the president of an audit committee. So I, some of what I'm telling you, I, I've seen. Uh, but I won't tell you which pieces and don't take that bit as, as indicative of my own experience. <laughs> uh, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> so two things. First, Treasury official who has some trouble finding buyers for debt in one particular auction room. What do they do? Pick up the phone and say, hey, bank X, um, will you buy some? We are this much short, 300 million, whatever, X short. What is a national bank going to say? Sure. Okay. So treasury officials like to have the person, the most important person in government um, is the finance minister and the person most important in finance ministry is the treasury person especially in countries which have difficulty in accessing the market. Mm. I guess in Germany it doesn't matter because they, you know, it's just the person who does the homework every day. But if there is a moment like 2012, 2013, when literally like, you know, you do an auction and people don't show up at the auction, then this person is crucial, right? Um, and <coughs> treasury officials like to have this part of the loop. And we thought years ago, well, we need the euro 
asset, which everybody borrows together and always has access to the market, which is a euro area safe asset. Problem, politics. I mean, countries in the euro area are not ready to have a common finance minister that actually is going to be able to supervise everybody's finances. It's the only obvious long-term solution, but right now, political chance of that is zero. So several of us, Guntram did one proposal, I did another proposal, Marcus, we did proposals that try to go around this in different ways by either having synthetic bonds like I did or having, so basically creating a synthetic safe asset. Uh, Parliament actually passed one of these proposals, which was the one Marcus Brunemeyer, Philip Lane, uh, uh, Dimitri Vajanos, myself and others put, which was called SBIS and Parliament called it SBBS. It passed in April 2019 and had a very painful death in council. Uh, as far as I can tell, I was not in council. But okay, it everything- It was a quick death, I think. It was a quick death. <laughs> I, I hear there, were not, there was not a lot of combat around. No. <laughs> so what do we do? So here, what I'm going to propose is kind of staggered solution that starts from what I'm going to call a safe portfolio. And the word safe portfolio and the idea of a safe portfolio comes from the uh, German finance minister who said, oh, we need a safe portfolio approach. And he didn't say what it was, so here I'm just taking advantage to say what I think it could mean. How do we limit sovereign concentrations uh, of banks? How do we limit the exposures of banks in their own sovereigns? We agree it's a risk. We agree Northern Europeans say we won't have deposit insurance unless this risk is reduced. Risk reduction before risk sharing, as their motto. How do we limit it? And I agree it's a risk, okay? So I'm not going to say this is not versus South, this is an objective issue. Um, the traditional uh, effort has been to reintroduce risk weights. Um, why should there be a blanket exemption on rules, on risk, which are the usual rules on you lend to a company, you lend to a, another bank, you lend to an individual, you assess the risk and you put some capital against the probability of default depending on the risk. Why should sovereigns be exempted? Some say. This has been the way that it has been uh, attempted over these years. Um, I will tell you my judgment on this politically and economically. Politically, it's a non-starter. Uh, there is no deal that's ever going to be made in which Italy uh, and other southern countries, Portugal, etc., see their access to market difficulty because now their debt is second rate. I mean, honestly, I think they'd rather not have any advance, okay? But I also think there are good economic reasons to worry about this. Look, uh, we've all seen the, the unlikely survivors of this financial crisis. If you told me <coughs> who is for sure gonna die in this 2008 financial crisis, I hope there's nobody in the room representing that. It's the rating agencies. I mean, how on earth Rating agencies that we learn have this gigantic conflict of interest um, get paid on giving these triple A's um, to the same issuance that are uh, afterwards uh, found to be uh, dodgy. Face no, no, no penalty. So, I mean, ratings are at least subjective. I don't want to get personal here, but they're at the very least subjective and complicated. And also, they're pro-cyclical. Cycle starts going down, some states start being downgraded, then the banks have the, this paper they thought was safe start having trouble. I don't think it's very 
I, I don't think it's a very, very good solution. The other possibility would be to use a large uh, uh, exposure limits uh, and say you cannot hold more than X, 25% of tier one, full stop. No exemption from Basel rules. Also complicated politically. So Nicolas Veron came up with a solution that points at diversification, which I'm going to build on, as you will see. So his diversification idea is, look, we're going to have um, a risk weight, you see it here, that increase with the amount of concentration. So if you have less than 30% of Spanish debt, no problem. That's zero risk weight. But as you start having 30 to 50, 50 to 100 of your tier one, over 100% of your tier one, then we're going to hit you with a risk weight. Notice that over 200% or, or even over 100%, this becomes basically effectively dissuasory and people won't have those concentrations. Um, Mr. Schultz, in his proposal on this particular aspect, he's, uh, um, he takes Veron, he specifically takes Veron. I don't know if he cites it, but he uses the exact same Veron table. Um, and he proposes the following. We're going to have a concentration factor and a risk weight factor. And we're going to multiply it and get an adjusted risk weight. Now, this has the same problems. Are we going to be relying on the risk weights as we did in the proposal before? And Veron's proposal has the following problem. You force banks to reduce how much debt they have of certain sovereigns. <coughs> but who else is going to buy this debt? Politically, you're kind of telling Italy, sorry, your banks cannot buy your debt but you don't create a, a, any, 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 any possibility of that, that debt being bought. In a safe asset for Europe, that would be obviously soft because we would all borrow together. But in this proposal, you're never going to have buy-in from those states. So here's my proposal. This is the capital key of the Eurozone. 26% uh, of the capital of the, Euro of the European Central Bank is, is German. France has a 20% participation. Italy has a 17%. Spain has a 12%, etc., etc. Let's call this diversified portfolio that corresponds to the GDPs of the member states, roughly, the, Euros, the, the safe portfolio. We're going to call this the target portfolio. I mean, safe, if you don't like, the target portfolio. I want to call it the safe portfolio for our purposes. And this is as, quote, fancy as I get, but it's not fancy. So it's, as, as sim it's, it's a simple idea. What we're going to do is, the academic couldn't help with this. Yes, okay. if I don't put an equation, I, I would just <laughs> give up all my past. <laughs> so, very simple thing. You're going to find the difference between the, the, cap the exposure of a particular bank to the vector of um, sovereign bonds from the different countries. You're going to find out the distance of this difference of this vector from the capital key, and you're going to say how much excessive concentration you have. In order to make it clear, look at it in this example. That's BNP Paribas. They have 10.9% of German debt. That means they are underweighted 15% Germany. They have 31% France. They are French bank. They are overweight 11% France, etc., etc. Now, we're going to define a distance metric. I propose one, but we could have functions which are a little bit more complicated. I don't care. The important thing is we have a distance metric that weights all these distances. So here is the distance that you have, uh, which is how far mm. are you? You just want to add up these numbers, right? But you don't want to add them up 
just like that because then the pluses and the minus cancel. You want to add the squares, that's just the standard uh, vector distance uh, in a metric space. So, um, and then you have a one single number that tells you how far you are from diversified portfolio, and you say, depending on uh, how far you are, you're going to face incremental capital charges. If you are really concentrated, your distance is going to be really high, you will be far there. If you are very diversified, your distance will be very small, you will be here, and you have very few incremental capital charges. Notice, we can make that curve as steep as we want, and I did not calibrate it for this proposal, so that's something just to discuss. We could leave it basically flat, and then we wouldn't be basically doing anything. We would say the capital charges don't change with your concentration. As time passes by, we can make it more steep and say, look, here, with this same distance, there's small capital charge. With this same distance, there's a huge capital charge. So we can just say, as the transition goes on, we push banks to diversify further. This, um, the way I envision this idea is as follows. Let's now make it practical. Consider a four-stage uh, path in which first we define this, this capital key, we establish this measure, <coughs> then we use this raising this distance metric as we want in order to have as much diversification as, as the regulator considers safe. And then here are a couple of, of, of new uh, ideas. In the third stage, imagine it could be complicated for the banks to be kind of all the time in the treasury calculating all this kind of how much do we have of each country debt. There will be some countries that could have too little or very little debt, or it could be complicated to get this, this, this portfolio right. The market will provide a securitized asset that will allow, here is the securitized European asset that you can use for your liquidity needs. And here's a fourth stage that you could agree or disagree, and my suspicion is that Guntram will disagree. Um, um, there was a writer by Martin Sandvo, the, the, the econ journalist of the FT, who said you should stop at three. Okay, the fourth is we go back to the original proposal by Parliament and that um, we put in the table in 2011 and we introduce tranching, meaning you have two tranches. You have a senior tranche and a junior tranche of this securitized debt and you say only the senior tranche counts as zero risk weight. Why is that? Because then you really have a completely senior, uh, a, a, a safe asset for the Eurozone that doesn't have any risk of default. And that allows for budgetary discipline and for states to really be on the margin and have the right incentives because they could actually be allowed to default. I, I God, God forbid that anybody defaults, but they could default without triggering the whole doom loop. Now, as I was telling you, this proposal you could stop here, okay? You could stop safe portfolio concentration charges and be done without actually thinking of making a synthetic asset of any kind. Um, I think it's better for safety reasons to have only the senior tranche of this whole portfolio be, be actually zero risk weight. But as I told you, Martin Sandro thought um, that's too much to ask. I promised a second idea. So first idea, safe portfolio, 
let's just have, oh, okay, sorry, I, I didn't say the political advantage. So economic and political advantage of this. Why, why did I say what I said? So economically, we have diversification. We eliminate source of contagion. Everybody's interest rates are lower as a Eurozone area because there's lower risk uh, of, of, of contagion. As politically, I'm now, when I go to the Italian Treasury, I'm not telling you, sorry, your banks cannot hold your debt. I'm telling you, every European bank is going to be holding a chunk of diversified European debt. There is going to be a liquid market for everybody. Don't worry. Okay, that's the political advantage of that proposal. How much? How many minutes do we have? Um, let's. Mm, what you tell me? I'll do what you uh, say. Well, you're uh, the boss. Uh, let's say maximum of five more minutes. Five. Okay. Okay. I thought actually I had one hour and then it was a talk. I must must have misread this one thing. One hour. I must have misread this thing. Three, th no one o'clock. Ah, uh, no, 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 it's four. It's two fifteen, but there's forty-five minutes discussion. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We need a bit of time. Okay, so <laughs> SRB plus. Now we talk about the second part of the loop. We don't want this whole national liquidation, state aid, states writing checks for failing banks, which is happening now. Um, we want a something different. We want a true banking union. I have a list of controversial cases here. Some. Bankers might disagree, some people might disagree with my characterizations, but let me just tell you that Banca Vincenza Veneto, for example, we calculated a 16.8 billion bailout by the Italian taxpayers. Nobody lost any money. Well, there was a tiny bailing. Um, we all have read about Nord Elbe over this year, 3.6 billion um, bailout. Uh, essentially, bail-in, investors lose their money when they make bad bets, 7.4 billion. Bail out, taxpayers pay for stuff they shouldn't ever be paying, 40.2 billion. That's not the banking union that we thought about, and that's not cutting the loop, because these are the Italian taxpayers, the um, German taxpayers, whatever uh, taxpayer in, in particular case uh, is at stake. So basically, what is happening is, Let's think of just the Veneto banks in North LB to fix ideas. In the North LB, what we have is banks, huge regulatory forbearance, banks which are allowed to operate for a year and a half below core tier one requirements. It's like, oh, well, they'll get their money somehow, okay? Regulate to close their eyes. The bank is eroding all their capital. They're eating up all their fantastically raised um, subordinated embryo, uh, etc. And by the time they're done, there's nothing left. Um, the SSM and the SRB did not make the failing or likely to fail determination. Um, the Veneto banks, we have a negative public interest assessment, despite the fact that these banks were 60 billion. I mean, one could ask, what does it take to be in the public interest in this European system? Is 60 billion not an enormous amount of money? Um, the truth of the matter is the amount of public interest assessments of all the failing of likely to fail in the Eurozone is only 7%. In the non-Euro area, basically they are resolving everything. In the Eurozone, we're just uh, passing on the back to the national liquidators uh, who actually go through liquidation. So my suggestion is resolution for the many and not for the few. Uh, what I would suggest is to limit supervisory forbearance, we need to put time limits. If you're three months without your capital requirement, then it's obligatory to go on failing unlikely to fail. That's like the FDIC prompt corrective action. Sorry, I'm going to rush now and you're going to be a bit lost. Um, 
rules-based uh, public interest assessment. Okay, so idea here. Instead of the SRB looking at the case and saying, mm, it doesn't look public interest to me, to have objective rules for when a bank is failing or likely to fail or has the public interest assessment conditions. Basically, all SSM banks, all cross-border groups, and all banks that have significant assets or deposits. There is nothing to determine if these banks go in resolution. Um, we need an SRB, which is, and this, this, this solution is called SRB plus, right? So we make an SRB that is going to be like the FDIC. In a second, you're going to see why. The SRB plus is going to have coordination powers of the SRB, of the national uh, um, resolution boards, and is going to actually participate in decisions by the deposit insurance. Here is how it looks. The SRB plus, remember the FDIC doesn't have two funds. It doesn't have a deposit insurance and a resolution fund. It only has one fund. We have here a system where we are asking banks to pay for the resolution, and we're going to then ask them for deposit insurance. They're going to ask us, what? Why do we have to pay twice? Well, think of it as two parts of the same deposit insurance. And now this single resolution board, this SRB Plus, has control over the national resolution systems and over the deposit insurance system of each member state. And now you see that rectangles are of different sizes. How are we going to pay for this and how are we going to make it palatable to, for example, northern states? There are two things that I would suggest to make this thing work. Um, well, first, we start with a hybrid model. I mean, everybody agrees that's the only way to go forward. We start with liquidity, then we go to full loss. We do it over time. Everything has to be transitioned in slowly. All of these things we all understand. And we do two, um, we put two uh, anti-moral hazard provisions. First, banks have risk-based contribution. Not everybody pays the same to deposit insurance, but you pay according to your risk. Like when you get a car insurance. It's not like because you had a crash, you're not allowed to get car insurance. Everybody has car insurance. Greece had a car crash, but Greece has to have car insurance. The problem is, okay, if you have a history of having car crashes, your car insurance is more expensive. Second, like the German Board of Economic Advisors, we say the deposit compartments of each member country are of different sizes uh, depending on the national characteristics in the transition. So you have national compartments that are different sizes on the transition. In the last econ hearing, uh, Madame Lagarde endorsed uh, this idea. Uh, she said that we were on the right track with this. Um, so a country that has maybe banks which are very well capitalized, that doesn't have problems, that has an IDPS like maybe uh, German has, etc. could have a 0.3% coverage, or the country could have 0.8% coverage on top of the European deposit insurance system. Um, that's the SRB plus, as I was telling you, um, and I'm done. Basically, how are we going to cut the two links on the loop? We're going to have a safe portfolio approach here that is politically feasible, I hope. Uh, we've talked to everybody on Commission, on the Treasuries, on the central banks, we hope we've talked to enough people to think that this could have a chance of flying. And on the SRB, uh, kind of change the rules so they are forced to intervene, limit state aid, give them this limited forbearance only three months, and put the European deposit insurance under the control of the SRB with FDIC rules. There's much more in the paper. I 
should like you to read. Thanks very much. And sorry, I thought I had a little bit more time. No, no, sorry no. that I rushed at the end. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you, thank you very much, Luis. There's lots of uh, food for thought here. Many points that have been discussed in this room. Uh, many, many, many points times. that I've discussed also uh, <laughs> extensively with uh, my colleagues Nicolas Veron and many others that yes. have worked at this. So, so thank you for uh, for presenting this uh, comprehensive package. Um, we have two excellent discussions. Uh, I think uh, perhaps we start with you, uh, uh, Tom, uh, to uh, to add your thoughts to what you heard, and but also critique what you've heard, and then we go to Mikala. And I'm sure um, I will also. I I do have a few points already, but I I am holding myself back on. because we want to give. Um, uh, the first words to uh, to our guests, um, Tom. Please. Okay. Thank you, Control. Can everybody hear me with this yes, mic? Okay. Yes. Um, so first of all, uh, I belong to the first pillar, the SSM. So it's a bit gratuitous to criticize uh, the SRB and the like, but I'll have give it a go anyway. Um, secondly, uh, I'm from Belgium, and those to the north of Belgium think we're a southern country, and those to the south think we're a northern country. So in a way, we're <laughs> sort of like in between. <laughs> right? um, I said yes to participate in this panel before I'd seen your paper. But had I seen your paper, I probably would have said there's very little for me to add, because I, I agree with most of what you say. Certainly the diagnostic, I'll come to some of the remedies. So the diagnostic, obviously, uh, the um, SRB, I think, has interpreted the public interest test way too narrowly. Uh, I completely agree with your assessment as a resolution for the few instead of the many. And we have a strange situation where we ask a, a relatively high level of MREL to the large banks. Then there's this slug in between that are in Netherlands where the MREL requirements aren't always as high as they could be. And then you have the LSIs where I can tell you we in Belgium, we do ask a full amount of MREL. And that's a crazy situation. Um, so, in a, as you said, in a reverse way, this is actually reinducing the doom loop. Um, I don't want to comment on any of the cases because I'm on the side where we declare them failing or likely to fail, which I can tell you is the most difficult decision can ever take as a supervisor uh, because you don't want to do it too early, not too late. It's really, really difficult. Now, on your solutions, there's, first of all, there's one point you hardly touch on, and that's governance. Uh, if I look at the governance of the SRB compared to the SSM, I think actually the beauty of SSM is that all the states are around the table and they have a say. In the SRB, that hasn't been the case. And I think uh, what we're looking at here is uh, transactions. Uh, take Veneto Bank. Uh, I mean, if those people are surprised that this uh, creates political unrest, I mean, they... That was me dreaming, right? Yeah. And to let that be decided by just a handful of people with the people from the country itself, not a guaranteed place at the table, is asking for trouble. So I would, I think this, in terms of governance, there's something to be done. And that actually then ties back to your proposals on um, the DGS, because if you want to have the DGS under control of the SRB, then you would imagine <laughs> that the governance is also something everybody is comfortable with, because the SRB, and I'm not a specialist in resolution, has huge um, power to take decisions that could go one way or another, that could be at the detriment of some countries, some banks, etc. And so I think the governance really doesn't reflect that. 
Um, I completely agree with your idea of, uh, by default, selecting SIs and cross-border banks assume that they are um, uh, public interest banks. But also, there are two stages, uh, because the SRB determines uh, uh, sort of like an ex-ante public interest test when the resolution plans are drawn up, and then there's one when things go wrong. But if you decide years in advance that it's not a public interest bank, and you don't ask for the full umbrella, then when problems arise, hmm. well, there's no way back. And so I would argue to be more lenient, depending on which way you look at it, in this first test, not to close the door at a later stage. Right? Um, and then I also noticed that you were, but you're more experienced than me. I'm not in politics, and I hope I never will be. But you're very, <laughs> you're very, very uh, pessimistic on the possibility of having a single uh, bank solvency law. Uh, I'm puzzled by this. Why this would be so difficult? Because this, is after all. Are limited compared to the rest of the economy sample of entities, and you can easily define them. They have a banking license, so that's it. And would it be necessary that every country had them from day one? I don't know. Uh, but it's certainly in international groups that have to be liquidated. It would help a lot, I think, um, to have this. Now we come to the safe portfolio. Um, obviously, I did notice that uh, in your paper, it's not as explicit, I think, the steps towards the safe asset. So I started to read this assuming that portfolio was the same as asset, but in fact it isn't. Um, but your, your proposals are, uh, I'm glad to say, very, very similar to what the National Bank also a couple of years uh, proposed. So how can I criticize them? Uh, we, we proposed more or less the same. Um, but clearly in the back of your mind you have this safe assets I'll say a few things about that as well uh, clearly it would cut the doom loop to some extent but not completely we should be under no illusion that it will completely do away with the doom loop um, because there's also if, if a country gets into trouble the economy gets into trouble then the banks will suffer uh, what, whatever has happened at the safe portfolio. I think there's also, um, as supervisors, we don't tend to think of this, but I personally uh, think of this. Uh, when this was last fully debated, there was one thing which I think wasn't there, or certainly not as much as the geopolitical, right? is that it, I do feel a certain vulnerability of European banks to the US dollar. And that is because so much of international trade is denominated in dollar. And I'm always told that this is the missing piece, the safe assets for uh, uh, the euro to be this reserve currency that we expected it to be. And so this is something which a couple of years ago wasn't there. Um, obviously, as a, as a regulator or a supervisor, this shouldn't play any role, but it's, it is still something that is uh, there. The impression I have is that the, of, of all the solutions, the sovereign bond-backed securities is the one that is has the most probability of succeeding one day, but I'll come to one day in a second. Of course, there's a number of things that need to be resolved, no discrimination, maybe even incentive, etc. cetera, uh, exemption for concentration limits, eligibility as collateral, etc. Those are relatively easy, um, but it remains obviously a political hot potato. And personally, I think uh, we will have to see the vast um, uh, majority of uh, states meeting their medium-term objectives before this can 
apply. Doesn't mean we can't think about it in the meanwhile, but I don't think it will happen uh, tomorrow. And obviously the devil is in the detail because, and I was talking to Mikala before, I do have my doubts as well how easy it would be to place the junior tranche. Um, what would be the impact be on the um, uh, issuance uh, by the debt agencies um, outside this quotum, so to say? Um, uh, what, what would be the ideal size? What would happen if there was a country that didn't have enough debt stock to fulfill its quota and all of these? How, how would you solve this? Um, but, it, but I do not rule out that this in the end could be a, a, a workable solution, but it's not going to happen before MTO is met by most countries. Before? MTO, the medium-term objectives. Yeah. So that's my five cents. Wonderful, uh, Tom. Thank you. That was that was very clear. Um, per perhaps I can ask you one yeah. more point, okay. um, Tom. Well, Tom, just to that. just to ask you on one more point, uh, which is um, you didn't talk much about the deposit insurance side, which um, yes. I admittedly uh, Luis didn't have much time to go in, into into depths on in, in in this, but but I think of course it's a, it's a crucial part of the element. The portfolio side is basically about. Um, making sure that the asset side of the bank gets diversified mm -hmm. by the deposit insurance side mm -hmm. uh, is, is about making sure that basically um, the, uh, the fiscal uh, or the insurance side, so the liability side mm -hmm. of the bank, gets the same kind of standard. Now, now this is a huge debate currently, and I'm sure mm -hmm. you're part of, uh, part of that debate. How do we get a European deposit insurance system? Uh, there is Luckily, a working I'm group. not part of the debate. You're Luckily, not part of the I'm debate, but there, there is. I mean, there is working groups in the mm. in the council. Um, I think under the leadership of your cookies, mm. um, the German deputy finance minister, um, trying to sort of break the deadlock. But one of the big things here is this home host issue. So that um, uh, host mm. countries um, worry that once we have introduced the deposit insurance. Um, you know, um, the, 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 the reason for ring fencing will be gone. And um, uh, then when it comes to resolution, you will still be stuck in a system where you basically have to uh, uh, resolve a bank. Um, mm -hmm. Let's say as a Belgian, you have to resolve mm -hmm. the mother bank, which is, uh, you have to resolve the host bank um, in Belgium, even though the mother bank um, in France, uh, let's say, um, has all mm -hmm. the capital and all the liquidity. Um, and all the uh, all the coverage of mm -hmm. the depo deposit insurance. So, so how do you see this home host issue playing out? Okay. I mean, from a Belgian perspective, I, I would be curious mm -hmm. to hear this. Okay. Really, and if I can, if I can uh, on this same question, because I, I, I am always, uh, I think it's a really fundamental question on this debate. Uh, a follow up to that would be: if we manage to solve resolution in deposit insurance, do you think that's sufficient to make the home host <coughs> issue go away? Right. Um, so I think EDIS is necessary but not a sufficient condition uh, for... Um, and it's also not black or white. Right? It's not like opening the sluices or, or, or them being completely shut. EDIS is a necessary one. Um, I think the SRB is, a, is well, what I said, governance and the like uh, is an important one. And then lastly, there's the issue of... Um, let's call them guarantees. So there's certainly certain large groups that would like to have waivers on liquidity, etc. And uh, their argument is that we will give a guarantee to the subsidiary. Now a guarantee, I'm afraid, is just a piece of paper. Right? Uh, if I was a director of a large bank and I got into trouble and I had uh, given a guarantee to a subsidiary, 
my fiduciary duty is to find every excuse on the planet not to honor that agreement. And that's noble, that's the duty. Um, and so uh, I think before those guarantees could really be called cast iron, you would have to have some European level, level one text that sort of like enshrine this. So, uh, but but uh, on, uh, I, I just want to uh, avoid the impression that EDIS is just the only one that is there. The SRB, the resolution, is as important a piece of the puzzle. But in the end, there'll have to be progress in sync. But what is being proposed now, I'm afraid, in my view, is putting the cart before the horse. Because there hasn't been much progress on EDIS, or none. But that means that there's no need, as far as I'm concerned, to uh, give liquidity waivers. Okay, very clear. Um, Michaela, let's turn to you. You have yourself made proposals on, um, on a specific type of synthetic, uh, almost synthetic acid, you called it viol? Bi bi purple bonds. Purple, purple, purple right. Purple bonds, yes. They were purple, your bonds. Yes, um, my bonds are purple. Um, so, so what do you make of what you just heard? And perhaps you want to say a few words about the purple bonds. Okay, I'll do, I'll do that. But let me just re respond to, to sure. some of the ideas I just heard. and. I would start off by saying that, um, first of all, I, I, I welcome that uh, you're putting your time into this because uh, I completely agree that we need some, some investment here and I think it's very important to, to revive the, the project of the banking union, which also ties in very much with the capital markets union and ultimately also the international role of the euro. So I see it as one of the key building pillars of, of uh, advancing the European project. I wanted to start off by, by making an important point which links in a little bit to what we just heard. And I think ultimately what we would like to have is genuine European banks that are diversified not just in their sovereign bond portfolios, but in their entire asset portfolios, mm. be it housing loans, corporate loans, uh, across their businesses. And for that, single jurisdiction is key. So it's absolutely the most Im important thing that we need to have, and, and I think you were also uh, alluding to, to some of the hurdles we faced in getting rid of, of many of these issues. I also wanted to just uh, bounce back on the question of, of why bond banks own sovereign bonds. And um, yes, you know, of course, perhaps somebody's giving phone calls in the middle of a crisis, but we should also appreciate that the banks have all incentives to be aligned to buy the sovereign bonds in the middle of a crisis, the national banks. Why? Well, number one, they are already aligned to the risks of the sovereign through everything they hold on their domestic asset portfolio, housing loans, corporates. Mm -hmm. So they have a strong interest that the sovereign continues to work because remember, the size of the sovereign bond portfolio is absolutely tiny when you compare it to the size of all the other assets that are exposed to the national economy. So this is the first link. Mm -hmm. Then there's the second link. They have an opportunity to make a potential carry on the trade, which can be very attractive. And this has been helpful uh, to a number of the banks in the periphery that they were able to make this carry profit. Um, but even in the US, if we go back during the crisis, earning sovereign bond carry also helps reestablish profitability of the banking system. Could you allow me to just yeah. make a little, a little comment on that? So the carry, you could get it with the sovereign of every other country. The nice thing, that's the part I cut myself from saying, the nice thing of having invested in your own debt is that 
you might say, look, if the sovereign is bankrupt, I'm bankrupt anyway. So it's a really one-way bet. Exactly. By having carry on your own debt, 8% or 6% or 4% whatever it is in a really big crisis, mm -hmm. it's free money. Because if the sovereign was going down, I was going down anyway. Exactly. And, and this also... But that's not a good reason. No. So <laughs> well, perhaps it is. I, no, but I just wanted to, 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 to come back to this because I think it's important that, you know, not to give the impression that somebody calls from the treasury no. and the bank say, okay, let me go no. and do this because we, we no. obey, obey to the treasuries. My point is that the, the banks have a strong incentive at the national level. And this ties me into the third point that I want to make, and that is that the bank funding costs are, again, very aligned to mm. what's going on. So... When we ask ourselves the question today, because we always talk about diversification, it sounds really good. We should always remember diversification is one of these strange things. It's there when you need it least, and when you need it most, it has a horrible habit of just disappearing out the window, because all of risky assets tend to become highly correlated in crisis. So it's just a, a point to keep in mind. But why don't European banks today just diversify their portfolios? You know, if you take a German bank uh, diversifying its sovereign bank portfolio into your Italian sovereign bonds, they can earn a tremendous carry. So why don't they do that? Um, well, probably because they're worried about what it could mean to their own funding costs. And I think this funding cost reaction function is something that we really need to take into the analysis. So my, my concern on... on um, on, on the, the proposals is ultimately, if we force the banks to diversify their portfolios, okay, there is a, a first question which I always raise, which is we're forcing uh, a private actor to diversify into a portfolio that we call a safe portfolio, but is not ultimately backed by safe liabilities. To my mind, a safe portfolio must be backed by safe liabilities. And, and I think there is something a little bit strange philosophically in, in doing that. So that's just a general thing. But my real concern is, let's say we do that. And let's say that a country, um, I'm going to take Italy just because they have the largest debt. Let's say a country like Italy gets into trouble. I agree with you. It's not good that the banks would step in. But, oh boy, is it useful when we're in the middle of a crisis that they can do it and maybe even be supported by a little bit of LTRO from the ECB. It's very useful. I agree it's not ideal. But if we want to get rid of this mechanism, we have to think about how do we ensure at least some degree of safe funding for the sovereign. And today, the reality is that the ESM only works in size for a country like Italy, if it's backed by the OMT. Now, implicitly, I'm excluding the idea that we should do a sovereign debt restructuring, because I think that's an incredibly dangerous thing to do on a large member state. We tried it on Greece. I don't think it worked very well. And I think doing it on a big member state is dangerous. So I'm really worried that these type of proposals could, at the margin, increase the liquidity risks on the European sovereigns. And as we know, you can be insolvent for a long time. You cannot be illiquid for very long. So illiquidity can lead to insolvency. And then I think, you know, more, this is more my European sort of uh, emotions talking now. 
I, I remember in my youth, you know, we've always had this idea that we wanted to have currency stability, right? So then, but we didn't want to have a currency. So then we did a snake. Remember the snake? Mm -hmm. Then we did the ERM. And in the end, we realized we had to do the real thing. To be credible, we had to do the real thing. So we're going to stand up to the global markets and we're going to say, guys, the euro is irrevocable. It's here to stay forever. But we don't want to share any kind of public risks whatsoever across the member states by having at least a minimum of public risk sharing. You do it through the ECB. No, I know. But <laughs> I get that part. But, <laughs> okay. but publicly and politically, we want to tell our citizens we're not going to share any risk. We do it through the ECB, I completely agree. But I think at the end of the day, there's also a message that, that we give you know, the markets globally. Mm -hmm. We do something which at the end of the day is a little bit complicated. And I think we really need to get towards some kind of genuine safe asset. So I understand the political constraints. And so I'll just say a few quick words about our proposal. Mm. So the idea of the purple bond is, is quite straightforward. It's to say that we're going to recognize today that PSI is not a good route to go down. Now, I realize that everyone who's sitting in here doing public debt sustainability analysis is going to say, but that's horrible. We need to be able to restructure Italian debt and cut it down to 60% of GDP or whatever level you like. I think PSI is a terrible idea, and I think we should just recognize it on the current stock. So. We exclude this idea on the current stock, so if a large member state or any member state gets into trouble, we're not going to restructure their debt on a PSI program if they go to the ESM. That way, the secondary bond markets stay open, the ECB can support, and those bonds are safe. Now, of course, I've created a moral hazard here, because what is the incentive for a country like Italy or Spain or France or even Germany to keep a fiscal discipline? Well, this is where we introduce the idea of saying, okay, the stock of purple debt slowly goes down towards 60% of GDP, which is a medium-term objective, and we do it over 20 years. And in that case, anything that is above in the future needs to be financed in a junior red bond. So the junior red bond becomes very, uh, potentially very risky. So that is the risky part. And there, the member state is at risk of losing market access on the red debt. But you still have the entire stock of purple debt, so the country never loses full access. And I think this is an important feature. But the nice thing about the purple bonds is it's just a building block. So if you wanted to take it, you could make an SBBS on the purple part, mm -hmm. and then uh, you can you know, structure around it. Um, you can combine it with other proposals like the e-bond. Uh, I see Gabrielle is here as well, so you know there we, we can combine it with other proposals um, <coughs> that, that other authors have done. But the idea is really saying, let's just share a minimum of risk. I know it's not politically feasible, but the other nice thing is if we do it, maybe we have to share less risk through the ECB balance sheet. That's, um, that's so right. If I can again react to those things. Sure. I mean, this uh, this is a lot of stuff to react to. Um, uh, four, four points, I think. Yes. Um, I, I mean, perhaps just, um, well, why don't you react to those and then I add my points? Oh, if you want yeah. to add, no, no. it's fine. It's no, totally no. fine. Um, so, so I will start with uh, um, your comments. Um, I would love to see that proposal for a safe 
It was a safe asset or a safe portfolio? Which safe part? portfolio. Is that a safe, safe portfolio. portfolio. Which I want. I want to. See, yeah. I would love to see that um, from the, from the Belgian bank. Um, the governance issue. Do we want more people in the room or less people in the room? Do we have too little independence or too much independence? I would rather have less political considerations. And you want the Italians from the room when it's discussion of Veneto Bank? I would like to have an objective assessment that says this is done and sorry, there is no discussion. Because I think politicians are always going to prefer, you know, you hurt few people a lot, that is quick. And those are the the uh, the banks and mm -hmm. the uh, sorry the depositors etc. And in and and uh, the retail investors and there's always some retailer who bought something etc. etc. Um, so I would I mean having a governance similar to the SSM for the SRB I would not know if it's going to I would doubt I would improve matters. So I, on that point I, I I would not necessarily agree. And on the so it's obviously harmonisation. I also thought it was a good idea, but let me just make a comment that, and hear what mm -hmm. your, your view on that is. Um, just one particular bankruptcy code in one particular banking system. In Italy, just to put one example, pensioners, pension obligations of people against the bank climb to the top of the, of the queue. Mm -hmm. Now, imagine just harmonizing that tiny bit of the bankruptcy code. You're going to tell all these pensioners that they are now fifth, whatever number, you don't care. There's going to be depositors first, then there's going to be senior bonds, going to be whatever. Just that tiny change, to me, maybe I've become too much a politician, the eight months I've been doing politics, <laughs> seems horrendous, horrendous. I mean, imagine what that means, like the bankruptcy and liquidation code seems to me, insolvency code is the heart of the corporate code. It's like, when you know, when we are all friends, we don't care who has primacy, who comes first, who comes second. We all we are going to be served. When we are, you know, when only one of us is served, that's when we are like, no, I get the food, not you, right? Um, it's it's really, I think. I mean, to put it in a way that one commission official put it to me, this is not from the econ finance ministers; <laughs> it's for the justice ministers. And when something goes into the justice ministers yeah, each way, it's not difficult. It's not difficult. Yeah. That, you put it in a very diplomatic way. I'll just yeah, say it yeah. more difficult. So that's that's on those two points. I agree. I would love to see obviously harmonization. So I don't think there's any question on that. Um, Perhaps just one thought on the insolvency, yes. if, if I may. I yes, mean, please, please. On the contrary, I you're mean, the boss. I mean, at the at the end of the day, um, now that the UK is outside of the EU, most of our laws are based on Roman law. I mean, our law, our, our, our legal code is based on Roman law. Now, we can't harmonize that overnight. But, I mean, to say that it's impossible over a 20-year horizon, 20 years, let's say, to really uh, converge mm -hmm. to one, especially for the banks, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't strike me as unfeasible. It doesn't I strike really me as unfeasible. But I, I haven't been years. in politics, so... Yeah. 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 Right. Louis, this can, I, can I... Yes, please, please. Do, do, uh, do, do, so do. I, I think, uh, as, as I mentioned, is that we have this very painful resolutions uh, with an impact on certain countries and the fact that uh, this is decided by a small committee, so to say, where the people from the country representatives don't have a vote is difficult for legitimacy. Um, I can say from the supervisory board, I, I could do the trumpet for the supervisory board, every country has its 
vote and you can be put in a minority in difficult cases when it's failure or likely to fail, but at least you've been heard. Right. Um, right. I, I think this matters. Uh, okay. But to give you an idea just why this is so important, imagine that you have a home host bank, right? And that you suddenly all the waves are possible, and the the subsidiary lends its entire balance sheet to the parent company, and the parent company gets into trouble. The SRB could actually create a bad and a good bank and transfer all the assets to the good bank and leave the old parent company as a bad bank Basically. with a claim from the subsidiary yes. owner. The SRB has the powers to do that, and the the representatives from that subsidiary wouldn't even sit around the table. So that to me is. That is unhealthy. Okay. Uh, I think Probably. if ever we have a major accident um, where the DGS of a member state is left with like a huge bill, the damage to the European project would be huge. It would be set back. It's just not worth it. Mm. Okay. That's first I thing. Second one, on Italy, I mean, I, I, when you mentioned those pensioners, I presume those are pension funds or pensioners that bought into instruments that actually they should no, they shouldn't have bought. No, these are the pensioners of the bank. The uh, retirees of the bank. Okay. Oh. All right. Okay. The retirees okay. of the bank. Okay. Well, so yeah. I mean, but just to say, there are quirks in every bankruptcy sure. code of who comes first, who comes second. That come mm -hmm. from hundreds of years of practice. And okay. So so yes, both both points. I promise to think about the governance issue. I, mm -hmm. Your point seems to be mm -hmm. very reasonable. So I promise to think about it. You also talked about uh, the the the. Um, the SBBS, and uh, what happens if there's not enough debt? I think that what we need to do is to say of one particular country or sufficient outstanding debt. We could have a risk profile that you need to match, and we could allow some substitution within the risk profile. I realize that, I mean, that makes the same asset difficult, but if there's not enough Estonian debt, potentially another country with similar risk profile could be substituted. But I agree that in the implementation, that's, that's a concern. Okay. But that I mean, I, I think you would have to do something like that, but it adds to the complexity of something, and we would all like to have one day something like a T-bill, but this wouldn't be a T-bill. No, I mean, right. I agree with the two of you. I mean, these solutions are, are unsatisfactory uh, as a European instrument, somebody who wants, you know, you would definitely want a European debt instrument. The question is what's feasible yeah. on this next stage, and I, I think that, that we are answering different questions. If you're asking what's yeah. desirable, I mean, for sure, for sure that we want that. Um, so, so to Michaela's uh, comments, um, I loved her description of the objectives. We want genuine European diversified banks. I mean, that is like the objective, and we are further, I think she agrees with that, well, she didn't say it explicitly. We are further from that than we were in 2008. Would you agree with that assessment? That we are further from that objective than we were 10 years ago? I, I think we are, and I think we need to also understand why. Because why? Previously, the banks were much more willing also to lend to each other across borders. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And basically what has happened face. now is the ECB has had to make up for the fragmentation that we have today in the euro area. Yes. Perhaps to add one, uh, one mm. argument, um, in, in this context, I mean, if you look at uh, the data of cross-border mergers and mergers within uh, countries of banks, 
we see no improvement whatsoever since the inception of banking union. On the contrary, if anything, there's less cross-border mergers. And we need exactly the opposite, because I entirely agree with Mikala's point, which I think is a very important point. I mean, it's not just about the sovereign bonds that you hold on your Absolutely. books. It's really about the entire asset side, which is basically national. You are completely exposed to the national economy. I had a paper in 2012 with Chiara Angeloni in which we looked at this empirically, and it turns out that the doom loop is not even primarily driven by debt. I mean, it's driven really by the fact that a bank is in a country, and when the country is in, in trouble, you know, all your creditors um, uh, are in trouble, national. all your debtor, national debtors are in trouble, and this is a, is a liability on your balance sheet. So totally, totally. So, okay. so we need to be able to provide banks with, I mean, the, the incentives uh, and the possibility regulatorily. Right, right now, we're not even letting them with all this ring mm. fencing of liabilities uh, and liquidity as well. So, so I agree that we need to move towards those genuine European banks. I, to me, these two proposals will move us in that direction. By having SRB that has European deposit insurance, by having uh, the real genuine resolution at European level, and by giving some first step to diversify. I, I don't feel very comfortable, Michaela, when you say, well, you know, we're forcing private entities to diversify. I mean, banks are really regulated, and banks are very depending on state regulations for everything they do, and they are also using that regulatory, this, this regulation to their advantage in many cases, like the one Michael and me were talking about, which I kind of jumped over before because I didn't want to get into it, which is the point of why are you concentrated so much in your own debt? We're in a crisis. Instead of running away from it, you get more debt. And, and the reason is basically gambling for resur resurrection. So yes, in my opinion, absolutely, we are entitled and we should force banks to diversify. And we do that all the time with the Basel, uh, with the Basel criterion and with the Basel process. And we will do that again this year. Um, in terms my, of my, my, if I can just bounce back on that, my point is is not the idea of saying that that you're not allowed to force banks to diversify. My point, so my, my point is to say that what we're trying to do today is we're saying because if we go back to Nicolas Veron's proposal uh, of saying we don't want the banks to be too concentrated, and then we conclude that actually that's not a good idea because then some member states may lose funding. Because why would they lose funding? Because they're not safe enough. But let's force the banks to buy this anyway, because we don't want to politically upset the member states that the banks would not want to buy their safe assets. So if we say we want to force the banks to diversify into less safe assets, then we can say that. But we, we, it's like we're sort of walking in a gray area where we're not being consistent. So my point is not that banks should not diversify. My point is that if we're saying, you have to buy this because it's safe, but tomorrow morning we may decide it's not safe because we feel like doing a PSI program, then we're not being consistent. And I think this is what I have a problem with. Okay, so, so that's, that's uh, well, well put. I would say, the, first of all, if we implement this kind of proposals, if we get the banking union kind of restarted, we can, the whole systemic risk is going to decrease. So, I mean, the amount of sovereign risk that Italy has and the banks in Italy have is going to be lower if the whole loop is cut and if everybody has some of it. Second, 
to prevent this kind of, of, of worry is why I thought those are steps one and two of a four-stage process in which ultimately uh, in which ultimately you actually do have a tranched asset like an SBVS um, in which there is a part of the loan that is actually saved. Mm. I do think I mean, this issue over insolvency for sovereigns should be ruled out for good or not. I, I do think that we need a system that allows that to happen and that's why I think tranching is eventually necessary. Because look, politically, <coughs> If we're not going, to, and, and, I, and I take your suggestion very well on, on mar facing the market on the marginal loans, but if you are not, if you're going to allow bail bailouts to continue, which is where we, th I think we are today, although it's implicit, you're going to have to intervene in everybody's debt. You're going to be able, you, you're going to have to intervene in everybody's public finance decisions. You're going to be able to say, this country shouldn't spend so much on their pensions, like we do now, with excessive deficit procedures, the European semester, the six-packs and the two-packs, etc. That is politically not tenable over the long run. I mean, the northern countries feel northern, the southern countries are getting off the, the hook. Southern countries are feeling northern countries are intervening in their, in their internal politics. I don't think this is tenable. I think we need to face market incentives, ultimately. So um, I would say... Uh, so, so let's... Yes, let's I, get a, let's get a few questions yes. from, from um, the audience. Quintram, um, can I just uh, comment on one thing you said very briefly? Did I say? If, please, if okay. the the metric raise your hands, that I already see who wants. To if speak. the metric of the health of the European project is the number of bank mergers or the size, then 2007 was a very good year. <laughs> um, so I I actually in today's market I don't think the, the, that is the only way a bank can diversify. If you see what some large banks have done to set up, like in Spain or in Germany, internet-based banks, you can build up a diversified deposit base. You can, with your portfolio uh, a project, you would diversify part of your balance sheet, you can buy corporate loans. I think this is not the only way. Very important. Okay, so uh, so we have a question here, the lady here, um, the Matilda. Um. Santonella Soria here from the Italian Permanent Representation. So thank you very much for your fruitful discuss. It's a very complicated, uh, wide, uh, full of details uh, discussion. Mm. We don't have time to look at all the various aspects of the discussion, which, as you said, uh, has very many ideal mm -hmm. items to fulfill. So I would like to echo some of the observations of Mr. Marcusen and uh, ask to the speaker, the main speaker, something about his paper. Um, I tend to sympathize with your idea of uh, losing sight of diversification and liquidity in the markets, which are concepts that are there when everything is failed and tend to dries up when there are crises. So the safe asset, the sovereign bond markets, is an important uh, market for liquidity and for collateral, for the, uh, in a way, the, it's the lubrificant for credit. So it, it has an important economic role per se as a market. So you tend to see always of the, on the sides of the banks as holders of sovereign bonds, but you lose sight of banks as market makers and lose sight of the functioning of the market of right. sovereign bonds as collateral market, uh, which was very important also at the beginning of the crisis. So 
we should be very careful in thinking about um, uh, abandoning the role of a safe asset as a benchmark for liquidity markets without creating a truly genuine, full-fledged safe asset that can make this role uh, which is very important for the overall economy. On your second, on your second <coughs> presentation, so the, the side of the DGS functioning, you didn't mention during your presentation some idea that I read in your paper, which is the abolition of the super preference of the DGS. We, I think that this is a very important proposal, which is, would give DGS more room of maneuver in their alternative intervention in order to make uh, a, a more socially valuable uh, role of DGS, mm. not only in liquidation, but also in the prevention phases. So if you can say something on that as well. Let's, Thanks, co let's collect a, oh, a few, sorry, if I you don't mind, because yeah. um, we have very little time. Um, right. Is there a second uh, person that would like to intervene? Ha. Yeah, everybody is feeling. Gabriele Giudice. Yeah, Gabriel Giudice from the Commission. I wanted to ask you something about the sequencing. I mean, there is the general question whether one should treat uh, you know, the regulatory aspects before a safe asset or not, but I don't want to look into that. There is another important aspect which you mentioned in your slide, but you put in as the third step, which uh, in my view might be a more important solution to you know, the problem of the phone calls, which is the result of a captive market on national level. In terms of bond issuance, as you know, there's different platforms and very small number of primary dealers, and they all call each other and very, you know. And you mentioned it is the idea of the European debt distribution instrument. So the fact that you create a European platform, per se, perhaps might be something which is not down in the down the road in two years, but might be something which can come earlier than that, and perhaps facilitate a lot of these discussions, and also facilitate a more an easier trading into other assets, uh, into non-national assets also by, by, by primary dealers, for example. Okay, so we have those three questions. Um, let me add um, a very quick fourth one, which is really about um, uh, a more political assessment of uh, whether you think if um, banks really throughout the Eurozone hold a diversified portfolio, and we have to come to the moment where we have to do a bail-in of a significant country. Do you really think it's politically feasible if, if, if creditors and in, in banks in every country lose money? So, um, I'll take the four. I'll take the four. No, none of them are not easy. On the sovereign bond as a, as a, as a benchmark and the importance of that market, I, I think that is right. I mean, I, I would say that there is some degree of risk sharing in mm -hmm. my proposal, which comes from the deposit insurance and the resolution insurance, mm -hmm. the SB, SRB plus. Um, uh, there is no risk sharing. I agree on the first part of the proposal on the sovereign bond market. Uh, I can only say, yes, ultimately, we want to be ready and we want to have a market, uh, a bond. I just... Honestly, like, I mean, I wish you sat for five minutes in one of my group meetings. I mean, uh, uh, <laughs> like, several orders of magnitudes less of risk sharing than what you're talking about would be unconceivable to mo most of my members. So it's, it's really, I mean, I, uh, the politics of this, when you are in an economics audience, the other day I was in the bank, in the European Central Bank, Blanchard was in the audience, and he came afterwards and he said, I mean, that was 
jug of cold water you pour over us. We were talking about fiscal uh, uh, risk sharing and, and, and counter-cyclical fiscal instruments. You all have seen the size of the ICC and uh, all these things. I mean, mm. the truth is that uh, what economists are talking about and what politicians are talking about have different number of zeros, several zeros in difference. Um, and so that's why I think now from the political side, the job is really to try to move the ball. I mean, do we mm. all, I, do I agree fully with your comment? Yes, we need a European bond ultimately, and I would hope that we have a European bond and European treasury. Super preference, thanks for asking that question. Um, the problem is the least cost test. The problem is that if you have just a preference for the protected depositors for, for just a very small number of depositors, it's very difficult to justify doing all sorts of other operations. That doesn't exist mm. in the United States. If you just make all uh, all the depositors party pass through, then you really have legal coverage and sufficient resources to have the deposit insurance do much wider number of operations without losing money. I mean, that's, that's not, that's not the, the question. Um, the question is, what you are thinking all the time is, does this operation as a resolution board, does this operation cost less money than the payout? And if the payout is just a tiny amount of money, just those super senior depositors, then the payout is always cheaper. If the payout is, is a larger number of, of, of depositors, then it's going to be justified. Yes, I agree very much with the European Debt Distribution Initiative and the, and the fact that we do need to have homogenization in all those markets. And I agree with you that I, I would think um, the politics of that are better and that that could be on the horizon much, much earlier. And I would, I would be quite optimistic about that. I think we put it on the Banking Union report that we just approved. And I think it was quite, um, it was well passed, no? I think well, it was the it was basically consensual among all the all the groups. Correct. That's my uh, my advice on these topics. Um, political assessment of uh, whether bail-ins would be possible. There's a diversified portfolio. I think a bail-in for a country is only possible if we have a trenched uh, a trenched mm. instrument, and that's why my fourth step is the is the SB, the SBDS, my fourth step, and I'm glad that that. Uh, it's maybe uh, Tom, not as impossible as, as I mean, you, these things come back, you know, the next time there is a crisis, Parliament passed this, mm -hmm. the Commission passed this, it's on the table of Council of Ministers, they can just put it on top of the table and sign five minutes. So um, I hope that's not impossible anyway. Great. Thank you. Thanks. Mikala, did you want to say one word um, to finish off and Tom, and then, then we close? So, I mean, basically, I take your point on the governance. I think uh, I think it's a, an important point you raise. Do you agree with him that it should be? I I I I I think it's um, I think the question of the political acceptance of decisions mm. is is something that's important and the legitimacy, but I think it also raises the point that um, there has to be the idea of independence. So representation, yes, but independence as well. So mm. I, you know, listening to what you said, I was just thinking about this. You know, I was sort of imagining the ECB board while you were talking, yeah. and and I think it maybe has to have uh, the idea of independence, governance, and independence mm. need to come together. Mm. 
But I, I, I thought you raised a, an important yeah. uh, question there. I, mean, I, I can guarantee you I've held debates in the supervisory board where I was absolutely convinced I was right, but I was still put in a minority. <laughs> but I was <laughs> able to make my case. Yeah. So uh, the good news about the um, resolution is that it's just policy which the SRB could change. Now I have sympathy for the SRB. They start from scratch for them to take on hundreds of banks in one go would have been difficult. Uh, so maybe it's just a matter of extending the scope uh, gradually over time as policies can be changed relatively easy. So I'm optimistic uh, there because the situation we have now has actually come to perverse result, as you said. Okay, I think that's all we have for today. Uh, thank you so much to our three speakers. Thank you, Luis. Thank you, Tom. Thank My you, Michaela. It was a pleasure to discuss this uh, very difficult but important topic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.